All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? You look great. We'll just start with that. There you go. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. It is a privilege to get to be here with you on this second Sunday of the month of September. You've heard it already today. We would love to see all your smiling faces up at the lake today, so please make plans if you can to join us. We're just having a great time. No agenda except for some incredibly encouraging baptisms at the end of our time. So love for you to be a part of that. Well, we're so glad that you're here with us. You saw in the video, we are looking at different metaphors, different images for the church. We finished our time, uh, John chapter 5 through 12, we took a chunk of the gospel of John and we looked at this idea of Jesus as the good shepherd. And the sheep shepherd metaphor was really rich. Three weeks in a row, all throughout John chapter 10. And we said, let's take a month, this month of September, and let's look at some other different metaphors. What are the other images, descriptors, that describe not only who we are to Jesus as his church, but who we are to each other? And so last week, we had a great time jumping into this concept with the idea that we are the body of Christ. And we talked about that idea of unity, diversity, and interdependence. And we alluded to what we're going to be looking at today, this idea that we are the temple of God, the building as it were, but we'll kind of talk about that. What does that mean in just a second? So if you have a Bible today here with you, if you'd open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So it was in my mouth, seventh book of the Bible. And if you didn't get notes there in the back, if you want to jump on our app, you can do that and go to resources, sermon notes, and fill in some things digitally as well. I believe this is the first week that our home groups are planning on being back, many of them. So home group notes should be attached to those as well and just help you in your conversation kind of kickstart that a little bit together. Well, let's do this. As you're getting ready and we're kind of diving in, I wanted to give you an announcement from our elder board. We had a meeting this last Tuesday, and as we're talking things through, we are conscious of both the needs that are in our world as well as the, uh, the opportunities or the times that we keep coming back asking for, giving you the opportunity to give yet again. And so we've kind of found a tweener in there that we had actually exercised a couple times in uh, the beginning of the pandemic, and that was kind of taking a tithe, as it were, an amount from our HELPS Fund to be able to meet some needs around the world. So take a look at the slide. Our EFCA um, denomination has some efforts going on in Hurricane Ida relief, as well as for Afghan refugees. These are specifically refugees who've been brought to the States and are in cities where EFCA churches are there, and it's going to help uh, support and give resources that they in turn can give to Afghan refugees. So these are two things that we know have been on your minds and hearts. You've talked to us about them, and we thought, hey, because of not only the special offering that we just recently did, that was really rich, and your generosity, you gave $8,000 to that recent cause. But in that, and that was the Haiti earthquake relief, we just have a lot going on in our world today. And so we thought, let's do this from our Helps Fund that you've been incredibly generous in giving towards. We're gonna give 5,000 towards each of these projects on behalf of us as Trinity EV Free Church. And um, then, like I said, there'll be some more uh, opportunities coming. Advent Conspiracy is just a couple months away, and that's a really rich time when we give so generously to different opportunities to partner with our global workers. So just wanted you to know that. Be aware. If you have any questions, elders are always available out in the plaza after the service. You can catch one of them and, and find out more. But we're excited to be able to partner with our denomination in these efforts. So 
Today, we're going to talk about that you, and I'm going to say this both ways, right? Our English word you throws us off a lot in the New Testament. And what I mean by that is that in the original Greek, I'm leaning, Todd, stop, stop. There we go. I'm like, Todd, just stand there for a second. Um, in English, you can mean you or it can mean y'all, right? And in the original Greek, that distinction would be very obvious. They would really know clearly if it was a singular or a plural. Today, what we're going to see is this temple, you are the temple of God, applies to both. You specifically and y'all. And we're going to kind of look at that together. We're going to kind of figure out some things. This is not a metaphor for the church that we tend to think of very much. And we'll unpack a little bit as to why. So in some ways, this is kind of some different information that we don't engage all the time. But I'm so excited to walk through with you what it means, but then the implications. What does it mean that you individually and you corporately are and represent the temple of God? What is that whole concept about? So I'm excited to dive in with you uh, on it today. Let's look at our now what statement. Here's kind of the focal point of what we hope to walk away with and apply this week. Because God's spirit resides in you, let his presence define who you are and how you live. Because the spirit of God resides in you, if you put your faith in Christ, then let his presence define who you are and how you live. Number one, if you're taking notes with us, you are a part of God's temple because God's spirit resides in you. That's the qualifier. You are a part of God's temple because if God's spirit resides in you. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 10. As I read this, listen for construction language. Listen for the language of building, okay? Beginning in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, Paul writing the Corinthian church, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, capital D day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what, he, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now, I have shared with you before, the first part of what we've read today was incredibly life-changing to me. Well, I was a freshman in college. I was sitting up at First Baptist Church, Ukaipa, and had a guest speaker that day. All he did was read that passage and keep going, but I never left. I just stayed focused on this reality. It hit me like a ton of bricks for the first time in my life that as a follower of Jesus, I could live my whole life and have none of it count, have none of it be of any kind of eternal significance. But Paul keeps going with that language. He moves beyond the individual reality of us as believers one day standing before God, not based on the great white throne judgment of being a part of his family or not, but what did we do with the opportunities that we had? That second kind of judgment called the Bema seat 
That is very rich and very real in the New Testament. Paul moves from that idea and immediately after talking about that says, you, plural, y'all, are the temple of God. Why? Because his spirit dwells among you. Dwells in you, dwells among you. And this is the, the concept. You together, again, in a plurality, in a community, you are that temple. Now, before we go too far today, the very best way I know of helping describe this idea of temple that will move us away from a structural, like today, we are in a, a building. This video is going to help us immensely move away from a temple equals brick and mortar, okay? This is our friends, the guys from the Bible Project. Take a look, and we'll pull it back together. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest. 
and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So, at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. All right, just such a good overview that's kind of moving our mind away from temple equals physical structure, physical building, and it's kind of giving this really big picture overview, and you kept seeing, as my geometry right, parallelograms, right? These little kind of, you know, sideways square things kind of resting over people, resting over things, indicating this is where God's presence uniquely dwells. And so let's kind of see, let's use that as kind of a foundation, let's build on that. This is a metaphor that we don't often think about for a host of reasons. The first is you've been trained to think that the church isn't a building, and rightly so. It's not. That's why you'll often hear me say things. I don't say, let's go to the church. I'll say, let's go to the campus, because this is simply a place where the church, the people of God, like we sang in this first song today, you know, we're in the house of the Lord because we're here, not because there's a building here. We even talk about the idea of let's go to church, like let's go to a worship service. We don't use that language because it's a worship service. We are the people of God. We are the church. So we tend not to want to kind of think about this language a whole lot. Another reason why is when you looked in the mirror this morning, you probably didn't go, that is one good-looking temple. <laughs> At least not many of us, okay? Uh, me for sure. So when you look at that, you kind of get that idea of kind of going, well, I don't, I don't think of myself that way. Or maybe a third way even comes to this. Even the imagery that we use for this series, it's on the back wall, and you'll even see some of the stained glass kind of around uh, the stage. This idea, that's what we usually think of when we think of the church, back to this idea of a lot of, of, of beauty, a lot of austere, a lot of and what goes with religion. We talk a lot about relationship, having a relationship with God through Jesus, and therefore we tend to not get hung up on a lot of the idea of the the these acraments, so that's not a word, um, extra things, right? We tend to focus back on what seems to matter most. So as a result, we've kind of done away in our minds in lots of environments with this concept of we are the temple. But today we want to go into it because the Bible says, the New Testament says we are. So we want to plumb that. We want to see what that looks like. Let's go back to the former covenant, the Old Testament. You saw some images in the video one of the ways that the temple was especially obvious was the tabernacle as the people of Israel were moving throughout the wilderness and like the video said, when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. These concepts were really clear about this is where the unique presence of God dwells, specifically 
in both of these environments in a thing that was called the Holy of Holies, this unique environment reserved for the presence of God. Later, like you saw in the video, though, that temple is destroyed. And prophets in the former covenant, they would actually say things like, it's not so much how can we look forward to the nationalism of Israel and the temple being built again. Instead, the prophet Jeremiah talked about a people, not a place, a people who would be built up. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 5, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, my eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land, talking about exiles to Babylon. I will build them up and not tear them down. It's construction language again, I, but it's not about a place, it's a people. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me and that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Two concepts especially to lift out of that. Construction language, but not used about a building, but about a people. And secondly, this was going to be a communal thing. There's never mention of a he or a she, but a they. So this is going to be a community of people that become rightly related to God and not through the aspects. The Israel community was so deeply aware and entrenched in religion, God says in the future, this people of mine are going to connect with me at a heart level. Beyond the, the hoops of religion, instead they're going to know me, I'm going to know them. I will be their God, they'll be my people. But today I think one of the most powerful passages that we can look at to try to get our mind right about a temple not being equal to a building is what we looked at early in our series in the Gospel of John in John chapter 2. Take a look at this passage and we'll remember what Jesus is saying when he's having one of his first kind of challenging conversations with the Jewish religious leaders. Chapter 2 verse 18, then the Jews, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? But Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And by the way, that's where the conversation's happening is in the temple courts. And you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple, this is John's commentary, the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then, after he had risen from the dead, they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, when we were looking over this passage in John chapter 2, we kind of stumbled into something that, again, in our English language, we just read right over. It's not specific. But in the original Greek, there's really two basic words that would be used interchangeably translated in our English Bibles as temple. One of them refers to a campus. It refers to the temple, the temple courts. It refers to all the buildings that would be associated. And this would not only be true of the Israel faith, Israelite faith, the Jewish faith, but it'd be true of any other religion. There is a temple, like temple courts, temple grounds, temple building, all one big campus. But then there was another word that was used to refer to something specifically about the temple. And in that word, it referred to where the deity dwells. That's the word that Jesus uses. So Jesus doesn't say, destroy this campus, this set of buildings and courtyards. He doesn't say that. He says, destroy this place 
where the Spirit of God uniquely dwells, and I will raise it up in three days. That's not hard for us to make that connection then. We go, yeah, he's not talking about a building. He's talking about the residence of where the Spirit of God dwells. Look in your notes. Jesus used the unique word naos, which was used specifically of the place in the temple where the deity resided. This unique Greek word is not about a campus. It's about the unique place in the temple where the deity would dwell. And that would be true of other pagan religions and, and how they would see things, but especially referring when he's in the temple, destroy the holy of holies, and I'll raise it again in three days. So what are we to understand? If that was true of Jesus, right, we can go, okay, but Todd, he's the unique son of God. What on earth would that mean for me? Like, we can kind of go, okay, that's what Jesus was talking about. Destroy this place where God resides uniquely. I'll raise it again three days. We're not Jesus, and we don't have that kind of body and that kind of connection to God, and that's true. But here's the wild thing that I really want to show you today that, again, would be lost on us. Just reading, keep reading the word temple, but would have been so profound to the readers who received these letters in the first century. Almost every time we look today <clears throat> at the word translated in English, temple, it's the same word. Naas, related to us. Related to us specifically and us communally, corporately as a body. It's that word, the unique dwelling place of God. Not a campus, not bricks, not mortar. The unique space where God dwells. And here's the interesting thing. You already know that's not wrong. Here's what I mean by that. We'll say this often. One of the most powerful things that Jesus' ascension, he's telling it to the disciples in these upper room discourses that we'll see later on in John. I'm sending my spirit to you. I'm sending a comforter. I'm sending this one who's going to be this strengthening, this discerner, this counselor. I'm sending my spirit uniquely to you when I leave you. And in Acts chapter 2, this amazing event at this Pentecost celebration, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. And now people, and I didn't say the church building, individuals, the people, corporately and individually, the Spirit descends, and the Spirit of God indwells every believer. So that's really not too big of a stretch when you just kind of have heard these kind of thoughts over here, these thoughts over here, and now when you draw the line, that's actually not too big of a, huh? That's like, no, that actually kind of makes sense. So let's move away today from thinking that the temple of God has anything to do with a building and has everything to do with the unique place where the presence of God resides. Interestingly enough, we're using lots of construction themes today. One of the words that we use a lot in church world is this word edify or edification. And it's interesting, if you stop and think about it, that word deeply draws upon a construction theme. You've heard the word edifice. So it's a construction concept. It's related to that of building, okay, edification. But here's the wild thing. If we understand edification through the lens, not necessarily singularly for me, but more of we, we actually come up with a very different use and understanding of the word than we typically might, the way I often hear it. Look at this quote, a, quote, a book that I'm going to use, by the way, throughout the rest of the series is a book. People tell you I don't remember anything from seminary. I remember a good book I read, OK? 
okay? That's, that's what I've got. And this is called The Images of the Church by John Driver. He just does a great job of pulling through these different metaphors in the New Testament. This is what Driver says. In light of this Old Testament background, edification does not refer primarily to individuals who need help to become more mature and more spiritual persons. Edification is not primarily about you, you, you. Look what it says. Instead, the concern is to build up the Christian community as God's restored people. It's not about me, it's about we. The creation of God's spiritual house, the church, is the primary object of edification in Paul's thought and activity. Paul often speaks of the edification of the community as the responsibility which all members share toward one another. Powerful. So building words that refer well beyond just me, but to we. Let's keep going. Number two in your notes today. There are practical expectations that God has for his temples. There are practical expectations that God has for his temples. And by the way, that plural word at the end of that statement is intentional. Because now we're going to get, I told you it was a both and. We individually and we as a community are called the temple and the temples of God. Let's see what that means. You're in 1 Corinthians, if you take a look at the notes, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Watch, for we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Very similar language to Jeremiah 24. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There's a powerful passage that I've looked at numerous times with individuals about a lot of different relationships in their lives. And the big picture of this passage is saying, don't be yoked, don't be connected unequally to someone else who doesn't have the most important thing in your life in common with you. And that is Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's it. Don't be connected through a contract, through a covenant, through some sort of relationship where the influence is happening in such a way. This word unequally yoked would have been in the first century, like people would have heard that term again, not agrarian people, us. First century people would have understood you don't put a full-grown ox yoked, connected to a young one, an immature one, because they're not going to pull in a straight direction, evening each other out. They're only going to go where the big one wants to go. Don't be unequally yoked. That's what this passage is talking about. But right in the middle of it, what does Paul reference? He references you yourselves are the temple of the living God. So he brings up this temple concept in the midst of this conversation related to the idea of having this distinction of relationship. Now, what I love is what all God needs to do because he's God is simply give us a directive and put a period behind it. He has and should have that kind of authority over our lives. But instead, God does something different most often, and in this case, he gives both a rationale and a promise. 
The rationale is don't have that kind of connection to someone who also doesn't share Jesus in their lives because it's the most important thing in your life. Don't miss the big rock. But the promise that he makes is don't fear about the level or the kind of relationships that I'll bring into your life because I'm a good dad. This is a powerful passage. Like I said, I've looked at many, many times with individuals as we've talked about the challenges of thinking through the different levels of connection in their relationship. Now, interestingly enough, right in the middle when he brings up this idea that he's contrasting the temple of God with the temple of idols. And he says, what do they have in common? And he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Why do these, do these things go together? I go back to a retreat to my preschool Sesame Street days, okay? One of these things doesn't belong here. So, so when you have these comparisons, Paul's saying, one of these things doesn't belong here. They don't go together. The audacity, and he uses this rhetorical sense of saying, what do these things have in common? And he's expecting the Corinthian church readers to say nothing. Absolutely nothing. They're polar opposites. We even see in the former covenant when there was a time when kings at certain times in this temple that you saw in the video, the temple dedicated to Yahweh, would bring in idols from other nations in the temple. And every single time it happened, the prophets of God would come in their face and they'd wag fingers and they'd say, what are you doing? This is dedicated to our God and yet you bring in these other forms of, of, of um, connection or commitment when we're committed solely to Yahweh. They were always rebuffed and rebuked for doing this. So let's ask about the expectations for today. Paul's call, Paul is calling upon an ancient idea, but he's applying it to a New Testament church. What does this look like for us today? Well, it means this, that as temples, the temple and temples... There's something about the way that we walk, not only connected and aligned with him, but how we walk in terms of influence with others. I want to be crystal clear. Does this passage indicate that we're to have no connections, no friendships, no anything with people who don't love Jesus yet? Absolutely not. In no way does this passage say that. When Paul calls us in this same book, 2 Corinthians, just a chapter earlier, to be a people who are of a people of reconciliation. We don't need to be ambassadors of reconciliation to people who are already reconciled. So absolutely not is this meant to be a circle of the wagons and I don't want to have anyone in my life who doesn't also love Jesus, but it is to say the people in my life that influence me the most need to be the people that I have the most important thing in common with. As a dad to all four of my kids at all different seasons of their lives, we'd simply talk about what's most important is who's influencing who. In your relationships at school, your relationships on the team, your relationships at church, who is influencing who? And you need to be at the level of a friendship, you need to be at the level of a dating relationship where the person who's influencing you is influencing you towards who Jesus wants you to be, not away from that. That's what this passage is talking about. But it elicits this concept that because we are the temple of God, there's a unique sacredness 
There's a unique holiness to our lives, both individually and corporately, that we have to pay attention to, that brings in this conversation. Now, I said earlier today, most of these references of the temple of God are very community. They're very much y'all. But there's a specific place where it becomes very, very personal. It's in this same, to the same church, but a letter earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what it says. Flee sexual immorality, verse 18. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Now, that passage is profound for every one of us, no matter where we come from, no matter what origins that we have, we process, man, God, this is big. You have a degree of unique expectation because, again, the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in buildings. He dwells in believers. And so this, this body is somehow a temple of the very Spirit of God. I need to treat it as such. But here's the wild thing. Remember who Paul is writing these words to. I told you when I came back from a study cruise with Joanna almost two years ago now, it's wild to think it was that long ago, I told you I would be a little bit like my Uncle Harley and pull out all my slides, okay, and that first Sunday I did. One of the places we got to go to were the ruins of the city of Corinth. Take a look at this picture. This picture is shot from the Agora, meaning the marketplace. This is where everyone would have done life. And you'll see my beautiful wife there, and you'll see us just kind of as tourists, like you would expect, among all these ancient ruins. And the ruins kind of date back to first century kind of church age things. But what you can't miss, okay, not only from this angle, but literally any place in the city, what you can't miss is the gigantic, monstrous mountain in the back. Take a look at this close-up shot of what was going on up there. You see, when Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, it wasn't history, it was present. That there was pagan sexual worship happening on top of that mountain every single day. Equivalent to what we call sex trafficking today, that's, that's what their religion was. That's what the city of Corinth was known for. It's silted in on the backside now, but it used to be a bay that you could literally as a sailor come right up to the side of Corinth and you would make your trek up the hill. And that's where you'd spend your payment. This is what the city of Corinth was known for, was incredible, lecherous, debauchery, sexual practices. And watch this, Paul is saying, that's who you were. But let me tell you who you are. All things have changed. You've been made new in Christ, and now your body used to be given to all kinds of pursuits that were anything but godly. Now your body is where the temple of God resides. Flee, run away, have nothing to do with that life before be this person now. That is so powerful when you consider 
not just that it's in the Bible, but who it's written to and what this group of people would have clearly understood Paul saying, my body is this unique temple. I need to be thoughtful of the way I use it. Peter, in his letter, which we looked at right when the pandemic began, began we shifted away from the series and began to look at 1 Peter. These words we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 related again to the temple. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, right, that's, by the way, that's not logical. There's no such thing as a living stone. Jesus is rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying, you're not only a temple, the temple of God being built into it, you're actually priests. And the video alluded to that. Adam and Eve began in that role, and now as believers in this era of our world, we're called to be these people that the Spirit of God inhabits us, and we bring the Spirit of God wherever we go. And we're called to be these priests who offer spiritual sacrifices as being those who are make up the temple. And we go, well, what does that mean? Offer spiritual sacrifices. Interestingly, Paul said it this way, Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view, in light of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer the dwelling of the Spirit. Offer the temple holy and pleasing to God, this is your proper worship. So let's do this in your notes today. Let's remind ourselves of, the, of this term. We use it all the time. We talk about the word holy, but we don't always know what it means. Holy means set apart by God for his purpose. Set apart by God for his purpose. It has unique purpose and it has a unique calling. That's what we're called to be as a people who offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Think of it this way. I was pondering this this week. You've been in a conversation with someone before, and maybe it was you. So if I say this, please don't be offended. But maybe it was you, and you're in a conversation with someone, and, this, and something is said, and then you go, can you say that in church? Right? We say it all the time. That's nothing bizarre, right? Can you say that in church? Well, here's the funny thing. That should really never even be a consideration on our radar of what you say in a building. What's most important is what you're saying that's coming out of your mouth and what you're hearing as the temple of God. Can you say that in church? Can you say that in God's temple as a temple bearer, as it were, as the, the unique residence of God? This concept today is moving us well past the concept of, of a place to this unique idea that the spirit of God resides in us. We take him everywhere we go. And in your notes, as a result, what does that lead to? A holy God whose Holy Spirit now inhabits a temple that he calls to be holy. That's the implications. That's the expectations. And I don't want to come across today, by the way, of how dare you and, you know, think of all the ways you blow it. I blow it. We all do. But you need to understand what God is saying about us when we are his temple, completely rich with imperfections. But the reality is this is how he sees us. This is our identity. We collectively and we individually are the temple of God. Finally today, number three, the temple of God includes elements of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The temple of God includes elements from every tongue, 
or tribe, tongue, and nation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. By the way, it's been fascinating to me each of these weeks, the week before foreshadows where we're going next week, and that's exactly where we'll be next week. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. Watch. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So here we are in the second chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians is climaxing in chapters two and three to talk about what Paul calls in those words a mystery. And a mystery doesn't mean like no one can know it. It just means it hasn't yet been revealed. It hasn't been understood and and revealed yet completely. So now Paul's saying, here's the wildest thing. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Now you hear that. You've maybe been in the church a long time and you're like, ho-hum. But can I tell you, in the first century church, pow, minds blown. Jews, their whole lives, even those who'd come to Christ, their whole lives thought about how exclusive they were, right? Even their language, it's us and everybody else. This is so unique. We're the exclusive people of God. Paul is saying, you are deeply loved by God, but you're not exclusive, Because Jesus came to be the savior of the world. He equally so to Gentiles who always felt on the outside. Can I ever really know Yahweh? Can I be close to him? Paul is saying absolutely through the person, the work, the blood, the resurrection of Jesus. You are now brought together. You're included. And you're being built together into this temple. Built into this holy house that rises up to God. You are included. And these are words that I feel like for some of us who have been included and feel included, this again can just not sink in deep enough. But it's when you've been excluded from something, you realize the value of these words. And that's why, if that's true of the church universal, we at Trinity Church believe that's been true throughout our 41 years and needs to be true moving forward. And so one of our core values is simply this, you belong here. You're included. And this is a place where you can be a part of a community, both receiving and giving, contributing, that back and forth reality that's extended to everyone. This is a powerful concept, and it's part of what this temple is, that it's not based on this idea that, well, only if. Look in your notes. Belonging not only draws us together initially, but holds us together through the challenges that we will face in this local expression of God's collective temple. Belonging matters so much, not just when things are going great, but especially when things are hard. That's why as your leaders... Your elders so much in this most recent season have talked so much about the need for unity among us as a people. And why? That's not because we think it's important, something we dreamed up. It's God's directive and it's God's distinctive for his people. That the world would know that we're his because the way we love each other. The world would know that we're his because we evidence the kind of unity that Jesus has with the Father. 
These are important things and not to be diminished or think, ah, it's not really important. It's critical. It's essential. And it's part of what it means to be the corporate community temple of God. When we don't maintain that unity, we grieve him and we hurt ourselves. One last time from Driver today. Because of the fundamentally social character of God's temple, relationships are important. Strife among God's ministers or dissension among God's people constitute an assault on his temple. To form factions among God's people is to drive away God's spirit. It is not merely a matter of destroying God's temple. It is the destruction of the congregation and the self-destruction of its members. Those are powerful words. Here's how we end today. See the common denominators from last week to this week about these metaphors of us being the people of God, the church. Last week we saw that the Holy Spirit is the, the giver of gifts, the one who delegates and gives as, each, as he sees fit in each local body. Today we see the reason we can be called, the reason we are called the unique dwelling place of God is because his spirit resides in us. So see the connection of the, the importance of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, both collectively and individually, that causes us to be uniquely his people. This week, let our application of this be, because God's spirit resides in you, let his presence define who you are and how you live. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today looking at a, an image, a metaphor that we don't often connect with or resonate with, but it is powerful. And it is so important that we think biblically, that we look at your word to understand our identity and who we are. And as much as we are any other metaphor in the New Testament, we are also your temple. So this week, through the lens of both how that means we love one another, how we walk in unity together is this local expression of your temple, even getting played out today up at the lake and the opportunity to just connect and be together. Father, help us also take seriously what that means for us individually, that we, this body, this flesh, somehow your spirit indwells and help us to treat with great reverence, great thoughtfulness, great sacredness that our bodies are your temples. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, um, those, that metaphor is just not true of me. I've never made a decision to respond to the gospel. I've never made a decision to recognize my need for a savior. And therefore, I, I can hear what you're saying. It's not true of me yet. And I would agree with you. It's not true yet. But if God is calling you, if he's reached out to you today, the great news is there is no class there is no set of task lists. There is no hoops. It simply begins by A, admitting. Admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believing. Believing that Jesus is the only savior available. And C, choosing. Choosing to say, Jesus, I recognize that my, my value, my identity is found in what you've done, not in what I can do. And so I want to live my life as this temple, this unique dwelling of your spirit. I want to honor you with my life. You can make that decision even before you leave today, and I pray not another moment would go by until you do. Father, we love you. Help us live well. Help us continue to build our lives using that construction language as not just individuals, but a people that is so obvious that you live here among us. 
We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.